Well, if you would, uh, please open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Again, that's the book of Hebrews chapter 4. We love rest. You see this fact represented all around us in our culture. For example, according to a report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Americans spend about 55 to 6% of their budget on entertainment. Now, that may not seem like much, but for perspective, that's over 50% more than what they give and almost 300% more than what they spend on education. It's essentially equal, actually, to what Americans spend on health care. Americans as a whole average a little over five and a half hours a day on leisure activities and about three and a half days, uh, hours a day working. That's more than they spend on household activities, eating, shopping, and education combined. We spend a little over nine and a half hours a day. That's about 40% of our lives sleeping. And according to a 2017 article in the New York Post, American workers on average waste about an hour a day on their cell phones. You combine this with the approximately 45 minutes a day that they spend attending to personal matters, and you have almost a full work day per week wasted. Now, those are aggregate numbers, of course, meaning you don't necessarily, they don't necessarily represent the typical American. Some spend more time sleeping, for instance, and some spend less. Working Americans will obviously spend more time working than non-working Americans, but still, I think you can get my point. We long for leisure. There are few things we desire more than rest. I don't think that should surprise us too much. After all, one of the very first things that the Bible promises mankind is rest. Genesis 3, of course, mankind rebels against God, and as a consequence of sin, God tells Adam that pain and suffering are going to accompany his labor. Well, just before that, God also tells the serpent that man will eventually produce an offspring who will crush the serpent's head, and it would appear that man immediately understood that this implied the promise of rest. You see this bear itself out in Genesis 5 when Lamech names his son Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has caused, cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Noah's name, incidentally, sounds like the Hebrew word for rest. So it's not as if it's wrong to yearn for rest. The Bible tells us that we should long for rest. In fact, if I could put it like this, for the past several weeks, we've been talking about this idea of ambition. I've said that a man's worth is no greater than the worth of his ambitions, meaning not only will he be motivated to do anything so far as he thinks there will be some kind of reward for his labor, but even the object of his desires itself will shape the kind of activity he engages in. The one who makes it their ambition to be rich will make decisions based off of whether or not that will earn them money. The one who desires to help people will make decisions that help people. Well, this is one ambition that the Bible tells us that we should aim for. It encourages us 
to seek and find rest. We've seen this particularly through the example of the Apostle Paul. All through Missions Month, we looked at how Paul looked forward to the rest that he would receive at the end of his life and how this motivated and transformed his preaching of the gospel. Even in 1 Corinthians 7, as he talks to the Corinthians about how they should think of human sexuality and even the freedom that they should enjoy here on this earth, he frames it all in light of their coming rest. It's because the body has been redeemed by Christ, as demonstrated by the resurrection, that they need to be using their bodies now to serve Christ. It's because Christ is coming soon that they need to live presently, as if they had no wives or nothing to rejoice in or mourn over, nothing even to buy or sell. Jesus encouraged the same kind of thinking. In Matthew 11, he even implores the crowds. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Again, this makes sense. Because the the problem that the Bible presents, at least from man's perspective, not necessarily from God's, the problem it presents is that we're not presently at rest. Again, that's not the problem with the world from God's perspective. I think we can say that, you know, from God's perspective, the problem with this world is that God is not honored as God. God created man to glorify his name, and when man sinned, he ceased to do that. That's what God is fixing in the world. But from man's perspective, it's a little different. What we discover in Genesis 3 is that the consequence of sin is this thing called the curse. There's a burden that's been placed on man because of our refusal to glorify God. And the scripture encourages us to repent of this rebellion with the promise of rest. So it makes sense that Jesus would talk this way because this promise of rest is really the central message or one of the central messages that God is communicating in the scripture. He's saying, turn back to me and find rest. It's like I've said over the past several weeks, ambition isn't inherently wrong. Our problem isn't that we have ambition. Our problem is that we tend to be ambitious for the wrong things and we seek out these ambitions in the wrong ways. So it is with rest. It's not wrong to desire rest. Our problem is that we seek the wrong kind of rest, and we seek it in the wrong ways. This is really a fundamentally important idea. The way you think about rest will determine the way you live now. It will dramatically shape how you approach your life in Christ. And so I thought that before we moved on to this next section of 1 Corinthians, that it might be a good idea to take one more parting shot at this idea of rest and make sure that we have a very clear understanding of the Bible's idea of rest before we move on to some other topics that we're about to encounter in the rest of this letter. So that's our goal for this morning, to gain a biblical understanding of rest. And to do that, I want us to go, back, go to the book of Hebrews chapter 4. I think this is a passage that can provide us with some fresh insight into the way that we as Christians are supposed to think about the idea of rest. The passage is Hebrews 4, verses 1 through 13. Again, that's Hebrews 4, 1 through 13. Let's go ahead and begin by reading the passage together. The scripture says, 
Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his words were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again he appoints a certain day, today saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fail by the same, the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're in a church that's, a face, that's facing the prospect of severe persecution. I know that might, not be hard, that might be kind of hard to imagine in a nation founded upon the notion of religious liberty. I mean, really, the most we ever have to deal with is a few dirty looks and maybe an occasional bit of mockery. We don't really know what it's like to suffer for our faith. But even still, think about how hard it is to endure, even when you have to suffer this very slight resistance to your faith. And then picture what it would be like if the pressure was suddenly about to rise dramatically. There are more and more Christians today who seem to be sensing that there may be just such storm clouds arising on the horizon of our nation. Laws are being passed that would seem to inhibit many Christians from practicing the free exercise of their religion in the marketplace. Standard Christian teachings are increasingly labeled as intolerant or even hate speech. It would seem as if the legal precedent is being established, which could lead to a more formal and real persecution of Christians. Now, of course, I'm not saying that this is definitely where things are going. I don't think I, I know that we know. It would seem as if there's a lot of ground to cover still to get there, but suppose it does happen. Imagine the worst case scenario what do you think would give you the strength needed to persevere in your faith? And yes, I know the ultimate answer to that question is God. He is the one who strengthens our faith and causes us to stand. But I'm not meaning to look at this from the divine perspective. I mean to look at it from the human perspective. God is a God of means, after all. So if such persecution comes and God does cause us to persevere, then it won't come without our effort as we strive to hold on to our faith. So what do you think would sustain your faith 
in those dark times? Where would you find the resources to stand firm? If you can picture that sort of worst-case scenario, then I think you can get a decent idea of what the recipients of, the Hebrew, of this book to the Hebrews, uh, what they're facing. The book of Hebrews is traditionally called the letter to the Hebrews, meaning it's widely acknowledged that this is a letter that is written to believing Jews. And the author drops several hints throughout that these Jews are staring down the barrel of some pretty intense oncoming persecution. I say it's oncoming because in chapter 12, verse 4, he says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So it doesn't appear as they're, that they're necessarily dying as martyrs just yet. And yet it would seem some element of this persecution is already occurring. And we know that because the author exhorts him in chapter 13, verse 3. He says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Now, we know that these are Christians who are already familiar with suffering. The author says in chapter 10 that they had already experienced the same kind of suffering in former days. He even notes that they once had compassion on those in prison and even joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. So again, these Christians are not unacquainted with the reality of suffering. And yet it would appear that they're still hesitant about the prospect of facing this kind of persecution again. And so when the author of Hebrews writes this letter, it would appear that he does so in order to encourage these Christians to persevere. Over and over again, we find him coming back to this exhortation to hold fast to the faith and to endure. And he does this while warning these Christians of the consequences that will occur if they do not hold fast. Perhaps the most famous of these exhortations occurs in Hebrews 10, when the author says in verses 23 through 29, he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another uh, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? So then there you have it. Stick together, right? So that you might encourage one another to hold fast to the faith or or that you would not drift away from the faith and, and face the wrath of God. Point is, the one who endures to the end will be saved, so they must persevere. This is more or less the basic exhortation of Hebrews. How does this author encourage this kind of steadfastness? The answer is basically threefold. I've already alluded to one method, and that's with warnings about the dangers of falling away from the faith. Essentially, he uses the fear of the Lord to provoke steadfastness. Number two, which actually serves as the basis for number one, the author provides a robust defense of the Christian faith. The persecutions these Christians are facing, some of which may even be occurring at the hands of their own Jewish brethren, they're causing these Christians to second guess 
and to reconsider whether or not they've made a mistake in following Christ. Is he really everything he claims to be, they wonder. The writer of Hebrews addresses these concerns by pointing back to the Old Testament and demonstrating how it predicted the Christ, how it demonstrates that he would be a prophet greater than Moses and a priest greater than Levi and establish a covenant better than the one made with Israel at Sinai. And that's all there to tell these Christians, listen, Jesus is exactly who you thought he was. And so you must not now turn back from the faith and open yourself up once again to the wrath of God. So the author defends the Christian faith. And number two, he uses this defense to warn his readers about the consequence of their unfaithfulness. And then number three, he encourages. He encourages. And this is just good shepherding, by the way. Uh, You look throughout the scripture, for instance, and you see that God will encourage repentance and faith both with threats or warnings and with promises of blessing. God uses every means at his disposal to encourage faith. And here the author of Hebrews does the same by encouraging his readers at the same time that he warns them. And what does he encourage them with? What's the hope that he offers them? It's the promise of rest. If you've ever struggled to be faithful in the face of affliction, then you already know that there's perhaps no greater promise to offer in these circumstances than this one. It's sort of like when you work out. Like, I don't know about you, but generally speaking, uh, I hate to run. I don't hate it as much as I used to, but I still don't really enjoy it either. Uh, My wife, though, likes to run. And a while back, I made a commitment to run a 5K with her. And so to prepare for that, I finally made it a point to get into shape and to make myself run. Now, like I said, I still don't like to run, but as I disciplined myself to do it anyways, I learned that there was one way I could make it less painful, and that was by telling myself, listen, it's just 25 minutes, right? Uh, 25 minutes, you know, that's about the length of a sitcom, and uh, I've watched plenty of sitcoms in my life, and they're over before I know it, so I can do this. This is going to be over soon. And as the time starts to wind down and my lungs start to ache, I look at the time and I see that I have five five minutes to go. I tell myself five minutes. Okay, it takes me about four minutes to brew coffee. And that's done in no time. So this will be over before I know it. I just remind myself over and over again of the promise of rest. And you know what? No matter what I feel like, I can keep going as long as I remember this pain will pass. It's not going to last forever. This is the exact same tack that the author of Hebrews takes when encouraging his readers to endure. In fact, in chapter 12, after reminding his readers of all these Old Testament saints that endured by the promise and what they hoped for, he writes this. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I don't know if you're catching the visual there, but the idea he's presenting is that of a finish line at the end of a long endurance race. 
Like, I don't know if you've ever attended or run in one of these races, but because of the great distances involved in these races, the runners will get spread out. And and some will finish minutes, or in the case of a marathon, perhaps even hours before the other racers cross the finish line. And quite often what will happen is that the racers who finished first will kind of hang around by the finish line and even cheer on the other racers as they draw near to the end. That's the picture that the author of Hebrews presents. These Christians are nearing the finish line and they're gassed. I mean, they don't don't know if they're going to make it to the end. They've endured a little while, but can they do it again? But then here, there's Moses standing on the sidelines cheering them on. He's finished the course, and through his writings, he's telling them, don't quit, you're almost there, the finish line is just around the corner. They go a little bit farther, and and there's Abraham holding his medal, and he's saying, God is faithful. He fulfills his promises, don't stop now, you're so close. And then as they round the corner, as their knees begin to buckle, there's Jesus standing there at the finish line, trophy in hand. He's won the race, and he's beckoning them, telling them just a little bit further, come on, don't stop now, enter into my rest. I think it's really just a beautiful illustration. Here's this great cloud, this crowd actually of Old Testament saints cluttered around the finish line, and they're all crying out, come on, you can do it, don't stop now, it's almost over, you just have a little bit further. They're all encouraging the Christian with the promise of this approaching rest. That's one of the approaches the author of Hebrews takes to encourage these Christians to endure. And that's the approach that we find him taking in today's passage as well. In verse 1, we find both the warning and the promise. He says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. This exhortation comes in the middle of a section which the author both begins in chapter 3, verse 6, and ends in chapter 4, verse 14, by exhorting his readers to hold fast our confession. So he's telling them to persevere both with the promise of rest and with the warning of what will happen if they do not hold fast. He says they will not enter this rest. As he illustrates and explains that warning, he takes us back to the Old Testament. That therefore, in verse 1, draws us back to the end of chapter 3. And there he says, starting in verse 12, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So uh, once again, we have this promise. He says, verse 14, For we have come to share in Christ 
But then he conditions that promise by saying, if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. Again, he's encouraging them to persevere. He's encouraging them to endure. And how is he doing that? He does it by warning that it isn't the one who merely starts the race that gets to rest with Christ at the finish line, but the one who finishes it. And where does he go to prove his point? He goes to the same place that he always goes to in this epistle, the same place that any sane teacher would go to when attempting to argue the merits of Christ to a bunch of undecided or irresolute Jews, and that's the Old Testament. Here in particular, he goes to the time of the Exodus. And he reminds his readers that it wasn't those who merely came out of Egypt with Moses to enter the promised land, but only those who believed You know that story, don't you? About how Israel originally sent spies into Canaan and gave a bad report, telling the people that the land was good, but that there was no way they were ever going to destroy the Canaanites. You'll recall, I'm sure, how the people then rebelled. And God then told Moses, no one from this first generation, save for the two spies who did believe, would be allowed to enter. I'm sure you remember how eventually not even Moses would be allowed to enter because of his disobedience, his unbelief. Well, that's the evidence that the writer provides to prove his point here. Once again, verses 16 through 19, chapter 3, he says, For who were those who heard and rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And this leads us back to verse 1, where he says, Therefore, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So now this raises the question, what's the sort of rest that he's talking about here? When is it going to take place? In 1 Peter 5, Peter seems to promise deliverance from the trial itself. When he says in verses 9 and 10, referring to the devil, he says, Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That seems to be the same thing that James promises in James 4 as well, when he tells his readers, resist the devil and he will flee from you, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The epistle of James, of course, is an epistle that's primarily about trials and what God is doing through trials. And the general idea seems to be that, at least in that particular instance, that God is disciplining his people for their unfaithfulness. And if they would only uh, return and repent, then he would no further need to correct their unfaithfulness. The trial would end and they would have rest from their affliction. Is that what the author of Hebrews is saying here as well, when he exhorts them to enter into their rest? Quite simply, it would seem that the answer is no. He actually seems to have a very different kind of rest in mind. We see hints of this rest rest scattered throughout the book. 
In the passage I read a moment ago, Jesus endures, quote, for the joy that was set before him and is now, quote, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Just before that, in Hebrews 11, Abraham believes, and the author is quite specific in pointing out that it wasn't merely the promise of Canaan that he was hoping in. Writing in verses 9 through 10, he says, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And after speaking of the faith of Enoch, and then Noah, and then Abraham and Sarah, and of all the descendants that followed thereafter, he says, verses 13 and 16, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Finally, in chapter 13, as he closes the book, the author exhorts his readers with this same sort of hope, saying, verses 12 through 14, again, chapter 13, he says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. What is this city that is yet to come, this heavenly city with foundations that have been designed and built by God? The author describes the answer in chapter 12, verses 22 through 24. He writes, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the, of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Just to be clear here, I don't think that the author is being merely symbolic in this passage. I don't believe that he's referring to a merely figurative Jerusalem that represents our salvation, like what Paul does when he speaks allegorically of Mount Sinai and Mount Zion in Galatians 4. No, I'm, I'm fairly certain he's referring to the new Jerusalem that John describes descending from heaven in Revelation 21 and 22. Speaking of this city, John says in Revelation 21, verses 3 through 5, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. In chapter 22, he continues writing in verses 2 through 5. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. 
and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. You see what's going on here, guys? God is living with man again. There's no more crying, no more pain, nothing accursed will be allowed to enter the city. The tree of life is there. Do you know what this is? This is the end of the curse. This is the stuff that Lamech was looking for when he named his boy Noah. This is rest. I'm pretty sure that although Revelation was written after the epistle of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews was yet aware of this coming city. And I say that because as we come back to our passage for this morning, he's pretty intent on pointing out that while there's a sense in which we've... uh, Excuse me, got caught my uh, voice there. Although we've already entered into the rest when we came to Christ, there is also yet another sense in which we still have to enter into it. In fact, if you follow here, it's not just that we as individuals have yet to enter into it, but all of Israel, as in corporate national Israel, has yet to enter it as well. Remember, this epistle is addressed to the Hebrews, to Jewish Christians. And he says, starting in verse 2, again, Hebrews 4, verse 2, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Now, I don't know if you're following the logic there, but basically what he's saying is that Israel clearly has not entered the rest of God. Reason being, God rested on the seventh day, meaning there's a sense in which he completely stopped working then, since that is when he ceased the act of creation. The writer's point here is that Israel did not enter that kind of total cessation from work during the Exodus, nor, in fact, have they ever. He says to Israel in the days of Moses, the quote uh, actually comes from Psalm 95, but he speaks to Israel in the days of Moses, Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Now do you see that? God's speaking to the people trying to enter into Canaan, and he's saying that they will not enter that rest, that kind of rest, this seventh-day Sabbath rest. The writer continues, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news, who received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's also from Psalm 95, and the idea is that it actually still remains for some generation of Israel to enter into that rest, since David, so many years after the fact, is still imploring the people, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The implication is that the offer still stands. It's open and it can be accepted at any time. The writer then explains what he means here by this open offer in verses 8 through 10 saying, For if Joshua had given them rest, 
God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now do you see this? He's speaking of Joshua here, giving, quote, them rest. Meaning he still seems to be referring to the people of Israel as they're coming out of Egypt. Only now he's talking about the second generation. And the author is saying that this promised rest can't simply refer to what happened at that time, to that second generation as they entered into Canaan, since Joshua managed to bring that people into the land. And so for David to invite Israel and to tell them, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, like this other generation did, which did not enter his rest. And again, for him to say this so many years after Joshua, then it must mean that Israel still has not entered into it. They still must exercise the kind of obedience that will allow them to enter into this rest. And that's exactly what this writer says. He says, so then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his Again, God's rest implies a rest like God's. So for anyone to enter into, quote, his rest, they must also rest from their labors in the same way that he does from his. And clearly, no one has done that yet, not even the second generation under Joshua. We're all still under the curse. And so, quote, right, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. In other words, the fulfillment of the promise is still future. It hasn't arrived yet. God has long promised to Israel to let them enter into his rest, but no generation yet has. The covenants are not yet fulfilled. And this means that they are yet to be fulfilled. And they will be fulfilled in the future. So then how does the author exhort his readers in light of this yet unfulfilled promise of rest well chapter 4 once again verses 11 through 13 he says let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience for the word of god is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart and no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account In short, he tells these Jews, persevere, endure, don't look back, don't be like this former generation that had the promise of rest and yet failed to enter because of their unbelief. No, remain steadfast and endure to the end. Now, there are a number of things I find fascinating about this passage, more than I think we can discuss here this morning. But what I think is perhaps most striking is how the author frames this idea of rest. You see, as these people suffer, he doesn't take the same approach as Peter or James. He doesn't tell them, look, just suffer a little while longer and God will deliver you from this persecution. Instead, he extends this idea of rest far into the future, even perhaps as far as to the eternal state when the new Jerusalem will descend from heaven. And he basically tells them, Just endure a little bit longer, guys, 
And at the very least, you will have rest when you die. I wonder, do you look at death in this way? Do you see it as a kind of rest? You know, it says in Hebrews 2 that Satan uses the fear of death to keep men in bondage to lifelong slavery. Now, the fear of death isn't necessarily bad. There's wisdom to be found in fearing the judgment of God. But all the same, Satan likes to distort and pervert our fear of death to get us to run from God rather than run to him. I think one of the very interesting ways that you see this fear of death manifest itself is with this philosophy which the world promotes, which says, we've only got one life to live. So you better enjoy this one while you've got the chance. You know, uh, YOLO, right? You only live once. That's practically the battle cry of today's society. Life is short, so play hard, right? The idea is that we don't have a lot of time left before we die, so we better get our rest, we better get our recreation in now while we still have the chance. Sometimes you even see Christians buying into this idea. In fact, guys, I'll admit, I'm 38 years old, and there probably isn't a single day that goes by that I don't think about how fast life is going and how little time I have left. And as I reflect on that, one of the thoughts that I often struggle with is how much of this life I haven't enjoyed. And it makes me wonder, am I spending my time right? Do I really want to spend this life trying to serve other people by advancing the gospel instead of just enjoying myself? Friends, I have to tell you, that kind of thinking is what James would call earthly, unspiritual, demonic It is a lie devised by Satan himself to take our desire for something very good and right, which is rest, and to leverage it in such a way as to drive people away from God instead of to him. It's a distortion of a right understanding of rest in its relationship to death. We're we're so often told death is coming. You've only got a little bit of time, so enjoy this life while you've got it, as if the time for enjoying ourselves ends when we die. But while that may be true for the unbeliever, it's most definitely not true for the believer. Death is a threat for those who don't know God. For them, the suffering of eternal judgment awaits. So yeah, they better rest now because once they die, they will have no rest. But for those who have been purchased by Christ, death isn't a threat. It isn't a punishment to be feared. But believe it or not, it's actually a kind of unspeakable mercy. I think about this from time to time as I engage in ministry, just so you know. It's really hard to preach from week to week. Like, I know some guys can just step into the pulpit and let it rip and the sermon sounds good. Not me. I have to work really hard to prepare these messages. In fact, this is probably going to sound weird, but there are days when I get to the end of the day and I'll have trouble forming sentences. My brain is so fried from writing during the day. It's really draining mentally, emotionally. And honestly, I get tired a lot of time. I mean, I, I don't, don't get me wrong, right? I, I do enjoy the work, but at the same time, counseling, teaching, preaching, it's mentally and emotionally exhausting 
at times. And when that happens, I'll start to think to myself, I'll go, you know, I'm so tired. When is this cycle ever going to end? And then this passage will pop into my head. And I'll remember, oh, that's right. I'm going to have rest when I die. You understand, death truly is a kind of mercy. It's a kind of release. Like I know what Paul says in Philippians when he's sitting in jail talking about how he's hard-pressed between, between the prospects of dying on the one hand and his desire to stay and serve the other uh, uh, serve the church on the other. On the one hand, he loves the church, he wants to serve her, but on the other hand, he's enticed by the promise of rest. I know what he means. I can feel that too. Friends, I know this probably sounds elementary, but truly, death isn't something for you and I to fear. It's something for us to look forward to, oddly enough, to even anticipate. And the reason is because death means an end to our labor. It's an end to our suffering in the beginning of our recreation, the beginning of our rest. You see, the truth has been flipped upside down for us. Of all people, the saying should not be, life is short, so play hard. It should be, life is short, so work hard. Life is short. And so now, most especially of all times, is it the time for labor? It's like what we saw last week. It's this knowledge of the fact that the world is not our hope, that it is not our reward, that actually frees us to give this life away in service to others. That is what the author of Hebrews is saying as well. Understand, this is the cursed planet. This is the time of toil and sweat and labor. The new Jerusalem, where all those things will be banished, is still future. It's not here yet. There yet remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So this isn't the time for rest. Not completely. This is the time to work, to strain, to so expend ourselves spiritually that we eagerly anticipate our coming death. That's what we've seen with the Apostle Paul, right? It's as his outer man is wasting away for the sake of the gospel, that his inner man is being renewed by this eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. I tell you, there's so much more I want to say right now. But I'm running out of time, so let me go ahead and wrap this up by asking you three questions. Here are three questions that I want you to ponder as we reflect upon the idea of rest that we find here in Hebrews 4. Again, three questions to ponder as we reflect upon the idea of rest that we find here in Hebrews 4. First, when do you plan on resting? Where is the anticipation of your rest? Are you currently at rest? Are you seeking your recreation now? If so, why? Don't you realize that this is not the time for rest? Don't you realize that our Sabbath is future? That we will have rest when we die? Why are you not expending every effort you can to advance the kingdom, and most especially now, since the time is short? Perhaps you're not at rest. Perhaps you are laboring and you're tired. I think of the Christians that we encountered last week. They're keeping the oaths they made because they want to honor God. They know they've been called to honor God, which means putting others first. And so they're keeping their commitments. 
They're involved in these marriages. Their interests are divided between trying to serve Christ and trying to serve their spouse, which can be hard in and of itself. But then on top of it, perhaps their spouses aren't offering anything in return. You think of those married to the unbelievers earlier in chapter 7, for example. They're keeping their word, right? They're giving. They're serving their spouse as a means of serving Christ. And while their inner man might be renewed through all of this as they fix their hope on Christ, their outer man is still wasting away. And they're tired. Perhaps that's you. Perhaps you're in a situation like this. If so, do you realize that you only have to labor a little while longer and then you'll have your rest? Do you realize that the time is short and take comfort in fact, in the fact that soon you will be at rest? Listen, if not, be encouraged. Take heart. Hear the cries of this great cloud of witnesses who once also had to see by faith from afar but are now already at rest. Take comfort from this thought and keep enduring. Whether you are presently at rest or whether you're presently worn down with labor, the answer is the same. Renew your mind with the hope of this promised rest. Don't listen to the lies and schemes of this world. Don't believe that now is the time to fold your hands and take it easy. The thought that now is the time to rest is nothing more than a lie perpetuated by the very devil himself to keep men in bondage to their sin. Now is not the time to rest. Now is the time to persevere and to be so buoyed by the hope of rest that we uh, continue on in endurance. It's like Jesus says in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart will follow where your treasure is. So set your treasure in heaven and be motivated by this hope. This leads us to our second question. Question number two, do you labor hard enough in this life to anticipate the rest of death? Do you labor hard enough in this life to anticipate the rest of death? Now, just so you know, I'm being intentionally provocative in the way I phrase that question. I know that when we hear that word labor, our ears immediately prick up because we associate that term with salvation by works. Even more than this, I've just said over the past couple of weeks that Paul encourages the Corinthians to be free from anxieties, to not make their life in Christ any harder than it has to be. I just told you, right, not to labor for God, but to receive from God. And it can sound like I'm contradicting myself with this statement, with this question. So let me just be clear. When I ask this question, I trust you all understand that by the term labor here, I'm not referring to any kind of effort to earn your salvation with your own attempts at obedience and righteousness or anything like that, because that's not how salvation works. The only way that anyone is able to enter into heaven is through the righteousness of Christ. It's through his works, his perfect obedience that we're considered righteous, and we receive this perfect righteousness simply by faith when we believe. In that sense, the Christian has already rested from their labor. They must no longer strive for the righteousness that's required to stand in the presence of God. Neither am I trying to tell you that you should make it your mission 
to achieve for God instead of to receive from God. I stand by everything I've said over the past several weeks. You should make it your ambition in life to enjoy God. The commands God gives us are ultimately rooted in this. It's in finding our delight in God. So I don't mean to place a burden on this, on you when I say this, and say, you know, go out there and just deny yourself for the sake of the gospel. No, I'm still telling you, seek your joy in Christ. God does want you to be happy. But it's also, like I've said, he wants you to be happy in him. Again, the fact that God is not honored as God is the problem with this creation from God's perspective. And the way that that problem is resolved is when we find our joy in him. And my point is that although salvation is a gift that's received entirely by faith, at the same time, that faith is often quite hard to live by, is it not? It's just like with these Hebrews. They were struggling to hang on to their faith because living it out resulted in this intense persecution. Even the people of Israel back in Psalm 95, the problem wasn't that they wanted to do something for God, right? It wasn't that they wouldn't do something for God if they didn't persevere. That wasn't what God was asking them to do, right? He wasn't asking them to deliver themselves. No, he was going to fight the battles. He was going to bring them into Canaan. The thing that they struggled to do was believe. That was the hard thing to do, to trust. There's an element to that in the Christian life. Whether it be the struggle we face as we fight against our own sinful flesh or against our doubts, as we strive to find our joy in Christ, or even if it means we suffer some type of actual persecution for our faith like these Christians did, the fact remains that attempting to live out this faith will inevitably result in a kind of exertion that feels like labor. And it's that kind of labor that I'm talking about here, not the labor that comes with trying to earn salvation or in trying to achieve something for God, but the labor that comes as a result of our salvation as you try to actually live according to this faith. I would imagine that for some of you, passages like this one may fall flat. You don't understand what the big deal about heaven is. You know you're supposed to look forward to it, but you're not really sure why. Might I propose that part of the reason might be due to the fact that you're already at rest? Might it be due to the fact that you're not presently laboring hard enough in your sanctification to anticipate the promises of God? It's like I just told you, for me personally, my anticipation of heaven is born in part out of my yearning for rest. And when I look to Paul's epistles, I find I'm in good company. That was the outcome of his labor as well. So if you're struggling with that kind of gospel hope, consider that this might be the reason why. It may be because you've been put to sleep. You're already at rest. And so you have very little to look forward to. Question number three. Do you rest well now? No. What? I thought, I thought you just said to work hard now, right? And now you're asking me, do I rest well now, right? Does this make any sense? Well, yes, I did say that. I did tell you uh, to work hard now, to labor in your 
uh, sanctification in Christ. But I would also point out that while there yet remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, God also commanded Israel to observe the Sabbath now. And it would appear that at least part of the reason for this is so that they might both proclaim and anticipate that rest. You see, if you're the type that is laboring for the kingdom, meaning you are serving, you are trying to honor Christ, and you still can't anticipate your rest, then part of the reason might be that you don't do a very good job of experiencing some of the foretastes to this rest that God gives us now. I mean this in two senses. First, it may be that you're failing to find the rest that's offered in your labor. You may be struggling to Find the rest that's offered in your labor. This is the point I was making at the end of last week's message. Again, what we see with guys like Paul is that part of the reason why they gave wasn't to do something for God, but to receive something from God. They wanted to know Christ. And they understood that this kind of fellowship came as they were conformed into his image through service. So it wasn't strictly self-denial for them to give. Yes, they often had to deny the flesh, Uh, to, to, to give, but they also knew that such giving only served to feed the Spirit, and they were strengthened in their giving in the process. I think that many times Christians forget this point. They think that giving is only a self emptying, while forgetting that even Christ did what he did for the joy that was set before him. There is something to receive in our giving, and this can help us rest even as we serve. Second, it may be that you're failing to actually find rest from your labor. Again, you may be failing to find rest from your labor. You know, there are mornings when I'm out on the front porch in the Word, and I'm praying to the Lord, and as I'm there sipping my coffee, I'm listening to the birds chirp and watching the sunrise, and I'm just generally enjoying the beauty of what he's made and I'm thanking him for it. And one of the things that I always hate about those moments is that they have to end. I can't stay there and keep enjoying it because I'm also on a schedule and there's work to be done. There's people to serve. In short, there's not time to keep enjoying and worshiping and resting as I'd like. I tell you, as as I reflect on those moments, they make me long for heaven. When there will be time enough to fully enjoy the works and beauty of the Lord. In other words, rest sometimes fuels our labor, at least the right kind of rest will. It's not enough to simply work hard. The Christian must also enjoy the treasures that they presently enjoy in Christ so that they'll work hard. Rest has this benefit. It's even necessary for our labor. So don't walk out of here today thinking I'm only saying work hard. I'm not saying that. Please do enjoy rest. I think it's necessary that you enjoy at least some measure of rest. Just make sure that your hope is fixed on the right kind of rest and that you seek it in the right ways. Let's close by praying that we will all run with endurance the course that is set before us. And so enter into our promised rest. Let's pray.